Hello, Formula Interested American fans, and welcome to a very special edition of Fairy Tales with Former Champions. Today, we're going to be celebrating Frank Williams and the Williams Formula One team. As many people know, unfortunately, this past weekend, Frank Williams um, did pass away at the age of 79. Um, but we're not here to talk about the sad things. We're here to remember Frank Williams and celebrate what he was able to bring to Formula One, a sport that we love so much. Today, it's just me. So it's my turn to say, lights out, and away we go. Who, who gave you my number? I was having a shit. You are now listening to The Formula Interested Americans. If you want a great overview of Williams, make sure to go and watch the Williams documentary. My plan for today is to give you a brief overview of the Williams team, and then we're going to do something fun. We are going to rank the seven drivers' championships that Williams was able to get by how shocking those championships were. So a little background on Frank. He was born Francis Owen Garbutt Williams, a little bit unfortunate, and he was born to common folk, a teacher and a military man. But Frank was a hustler. I mean, he worked in a vehicle distribution center when he convinced his mom to buy him a racing car. Imagine if you were able to do that to your mom, it'd be pretty cool. With this car, he dove headfirst into racing and he got so obsessed with it, it ended up costing him his job. So he becomes a door-to-door salesman for Campbell's, the soup company. And during this time, while he was doing driving, he met a dear friend, Pierce Courage, and four other guys who he ends up living with in a, in a home. And, you know, all of them are spending all of their money on racing cars. You can imagine this place was kind of a dump, but Frank knew what he wanted. He wanted to race. He wanted to be in racing. So he was willing to make that sacrifice. His skills in deals, deal making that he learned from his time as a salesperson was super important for the rest of his career. He started trading parts of cars and selling parts that he was able to scrounge from these trades and then eventually moved on to selling and dealing full cars. And then he started realizing his skills as a driver, probably like Mazepin level, if not worse. So he turned his attention instead to owning a team. and. Things worked out for him. He lived a a life full of highs, um, some awful lows, which we'll get into throughout this event. But in 1966, he founded his first racing team, the Williams Racing Team. And they started out by running his good friend, Pierce Courage, in a Formula 3 car. Eventually, over the years, they moved up to Formula 1. And back then, you could buy a car from another team, modify it, and then run it as your own. Now, that's not allowed and it's unfortunate it makes it harder for new teams to come up so maybe formula one will look into changing that in the future we'll see anyway in a quest for more success he brought in day tomoso if you know the day tomoso pantera same guy alejandro day tomoso argentinian a lot of money into cars and racing and day tomoso built him a car that year Unfortunately, the car was not only slow, it was unsafe, and it led to the death of his good friend, Pierce Courage, in a race. That was a changing point for Frank Williams. After that, he said, this sport is too dangerous. 
I am never getting close to my drivers again. A quote that he said a couple of years later in a foreword for a book, the best of them are driven, motivated, pushy, won't accept second best, immensely competitive people. This is what makes them good because they're bastards. And that was his thoughts on drivers. So after that, he broke with Dave Tomoso, which cost him his money. To keep the team going, he had to borrow money from his girlfriend at the time and his future wife, Ginny. Ginny was married and she left him for Frank. He also took out some loans from Bernie Ecclestone, used to run Formula One. At the time, he was leading the Brabham team, and this led to a great relationship between him and Frank Williams that Frank would use their connections for political gain to make his team stronger throughout the years. So after dragging the team for three years, he had to sell the team to uh, Walter Wolf. Wolf said he could remain with the team, but would no longer be the team manager. So he decides to leave and sell his stake to go and found the Williams team that we know today, Williams Engineering. And he made a smart move. He brought Patrick Head, who was a young guy that was working for him, along to the new team and offered him the role of technical director leading development of the cars. Their first year in 1977, they purchased a car and they ran that. By 1978, they had their first car developed in-house and it showed some promise but didn't win any races. 79, they win their first race. So in only their third season, they're winning races. And by 1980, they won the Constructors' Championship. They proceed to win three Drivers' Championships and four Constructors across the 1980s, and then dominate the early 90s with four Drivers' Championships and five Constructors between 1991 and 1997. And this team started out in a rug factory. Probably the fastest thing to ever come out of a rug factory would be Williams Engineering. So now we're going to dive a little bit deeper into what happened during those drivers' championships? We're going to do this by ranking them from the least shocking to the most shocking and giving you a little bit of background on each driver in this list. So of the seven drivers' championships brought to us by Williams, the least shocking, number seven on our list, is 1993 with Alan Prost. If you don't know who Alan Prost is, he is one of the all-time greats in Formula One. He has four world titles, and in his career, if they had been using the current points system, he would have had eight driver's championships, which would put him ahead of Michael Schumacher, and Lewis this year would just be looking to tie him. In 1992, the team had won the driver's and the constructor's championship, so they were already the best team, and now... They have signed one of the all-time greats, albeit at the end of his career, he had taken a sabbatical the year before he wasn't driving for a team, but he comes back in and shows that he still has all of the pace. He won seven races that year in a season of 16. So Prost didn't have a teammate that was competitive to take points away from him. He was in the best car and he was one of the all-time greats. He wins the title that year running away and then retires just like Peyton Manning did after he won his last Super Bowl. Uh, Number six, 1987, Nelson Piquet. Nelson Piquet was a two-time world champion by 1985, and he moved to Williams um, in 1986. 1986 season, pretty similar to McLaren's 2007 season. 
And if you don't know anything about that, we talked about it in our previous Fairy Tales with Former Champions episode on Fernando Alonso. The two drivers for Williams that year were fighting amongst each other. That cost them to the win to Alan Prost. Additionally, as you saw Frank in his later life, he was in a wheelchair. In 1986, he was running back from testing, driving very quickly to try to get to the airport because he was going to run in a marathon back in the UK. He was an avid runner. Unfortunately, he never made it to the airport. He was in an accident that broke his neck that left him as a quadriplegic. Because he was not there to manage the team in his sort of ruthless style, there was allowed to be some infighting between different people. And that led to the team not achieving the driver's championship. But they did win the constructor's championship by 50 points, which back then when you only got nine points for a win, it's a pretty big margin. So they come into 1987 as the team that had developed the best car the year before, and they still have Nelson Piquet, two-time world champion. In 1987, he's able to win the title. He's going up against Nigel Mansell, but Nigel Mansell was a guy that would win a lot of races, but didn't have a lot of consistency. He was kind of a go-for-broke guy. Nelson Piquet was focused on, let's maximize points. So he finished on or near the podium in every single race. Number five, 1992, we have Nigel Mansell. Up to this point, Mansell had two near misses with Williams, 1986 and 1987, which we just talked about. But it was even closer than we had let on. In 1986, he crashes out of the final race, which cost him the championship. He needed to finish fifth or higher, and he wins that year. In 1987, He crashed in the penultimate race. He hurt his back, and then he missed the rest of the season. Nelson Piquet had such a lead in 1987. He retired from the final two races, and he still beat Mansell by 12 points. Had Mansell been able to race, he either needed two seconds or a first and a fourth place to tie Piquet's score, but because he had more wins, he would have beat him to the championship fed up with not achieving success at Williams in the five seasons that he was there. He then leaves and goes to Ferrari. He's at Ferrari in in 89 and in 1990, but in 1990, Ferrari signs Alan Prost. And Alan Prost can speak Italian. And if you know anything about Ferrari, they love to favor drivers who can speak Italian. Mansell got fed up with this and says, I am retiring from Formula One at the end of the 1990 season. But Frank Williams says, I want you back. Mansell says, okay, you want me back? Great. I want undisputed number one status with the team, and I want it in writing. I want support in a wide variety of areas with each guarantee in writing. And I want an assurance from the engine company, Renault, and Elf, which was the fuel team that they were working with, will do everything necessary to help him win. So Frank says, these demands are impossible. I'm going to start looking somewhere else. And Mansell quips back that he would be happy to retire if his demands aren't met. Sure enough, three weeks later, Mr. Mansell is back on the team. He had a great 1991 season, but the car was unreliable. They retired nine times. 1992, he dominated. 88% of the races, he was on pole, which to this day, even with the Mercedes dominance, is still the Formula One record. And then during 1992, Mansell had a very nasty contract negotiation with the team, which then led to his retirement. They wanted Prost in the car. 
They wanted him to pair with Mansell, and Mansell didn't want that. He didn't get along with Prost from their time at Ferrari, and he didn't want to be concerned with potentially losing out on a championship because he had a driver that was competitive with him. So as you can see, there's a bit of a trend with Williams, not doing what they need to do to maintain drivers. This would continue with number four on the list, the 1996 winner, Damon Hill. Damon Hill is the son of a two-time Formula One champion, Graham Hill, who unfortunately lost his life, not on the track, but in an airplane accident. He was a moderately fast driver, but most people would not say that he is one of the all-time greats. In 1994, he did come very close to winning the championship. He lost to Schumacher by one point. And in the final race, Michael Schumacher ran wide off the track. And as he came back onto the track, he ran into Damon Hill, which is to this day still contentious as to whether or not that was on purpose or not. Michael does retire, but so does Damon. And they both are out of the race. Michael Schumacher maintains his lead by one point and wins the championship. 95, Williams and Graham Hill don't do so great. They finish 40 points behind Michael Schumacher. So in 96, they come back, get eight wins. He qualifies every single race on the first row, beats his teammate by 20. But before the end of the season learns that his contract was not going to be renewed. Why this is maybe more shocking than some of the other ones, because the statistics sound pretty good there, is Damon Hill only won one race after leaving Williams and never really showed the pace ever again that he did in the Williams cars. So a lot of people say that Damon Hill was not a fast enough driver to win a championship. He just had the Williams underneath him, which was by far and away the best car. And with a more complete driver like a Schumacher and Ayrton Senna, it probably wouldn't have been such a close championship. And they likely would have won the driver championship in 94 as well. Going on to number three on our list of most shocking wins by Williams Formula One team, we have Jacques Villeneuve, son of Gilles Villeneuve, who likely would have won a championship if he didn't tragically die in, in a racing accident. He won the Indy 500 in 1995 and the IndyCar championship that year as well. He came in pretty highly touted. And in his rookie year in Formula One in 1996, he did pretty strong finished only about 20 points behind Graham Hill in a year that Williams maybe didn't have the pace to win the championship again. So in 1997, with Hill now out of the team and Williams moving to Jacques Villeneuve as their number one driver, it's looking like his championship to lose. Michael Schumacher had left Benetton by that point to go to a Ferrari team that had been struggling for quite some time. And during the season, he goes into the penultimate race with a chance to lock up the championship. He gets disqualified from the race for overtaking under yellow two times during practice. So now Schumacher takes a one-point lead into the final race. If you're thinking that this is similar to 1994, you would be correct. Because during that race, early on, he gets passed by Schumacher. So now all Schumacher needs to do is remain in first, and he is the championship winner. Well, Villeneuve had different ideas. He starts slowly chipping away at Schumacher. And on the 48th lap, he goes to pass on the inside of a sharp turn. And Schumacher turns into him, trying to take him out just like he did to Damon Hill in 1994. Only this time, Villeneuve only had minor damage to his car, whereas Michael Schumacher was now out of the race. Schumacher goes on 
to be disqualified from the championship and Villeneuve finishes in third place, guaranteeing him a victory whether or not Schumacher finished the race. And now you would think, okay, this guy seemed pretty good. He won in his second year in the league. And why is it so shocking? Villeneuve never won another race after this season. And not only that, he never got another drive with a competitive team. He was with Williams for another season or two before switching to BAR. And he never got an offer from a McLaren, a Ferrari, or any of the other top teams to drive for a potential championship, which goes to show, again, team above driver. Number two on the list of most shocking is Alan Jones. And this is less so on the quality of the driver and more so on the situation around the team at this time. As you remember, Williams Engineering only started in 1978. So 1980 was only their third year or in Formula One. Alan Jones came to Williams with a winning pedigree. He had already won a race in 1978 and Ferrari was trying to sign him. And at the time, Ferrari was the top dog team in Formula One. So he comes in and immediately shows success. Four wins in 1979 and then seven wins in 1980 to get the championship and almost got a second championship in 1981. But a close battle between himself and his teammate, Carlos Reutemann, saw both guys taking points away from the other, neither one winning the champion, and future Williams champion, Nelson Piquet, getting through to win by two points. But the team did win the Constructors' Championship. So again, why this win with Alan Jones is so shocking, obviously he was a very high quality, possibly one of the better drivers of all time. It's how early it was in the cycle. Think about teams like Haas. Haas is now in the Formula One for six years, and their success is fleeting at best. So to see a team come into Formula One and within three years win a championship, we've never seen that happen. So at the time, it was very shocking to see a a team this new come into Formula One and win that quickly. And finally, the most shocking championship of any of the drivers with the Williams Formula One team, Mr. K.K. Rosberg. You think that the name sounds familiar. That's because K.K. Rosberg is the father of future champion Nico Rosberg. At the time, the team was still very competitive. 1980, they won the Drivers' Championship and the Constructors. 1981, they won the Constructors. So in 1982, it would have been pretty highly expected that Williams would do well again, except that both Alan Jones and Carlos Reutemann were no longer with the team. And they were bringing in a new driver, K.K. Rosberg, to head up their efforts. And K.K. Rosberg, he had never won a race up to this point. And in 1982, he won the championship with only one win the whole season. So now you've got to be thinking, how the hell did a guy with one win take the driver's championship? And so here's what happened that year. Ferrari, by far, had the best car They won the Constructors' Championship. But unfortunately, they lost two drivers in the middle of the season. Gilles Villeneuve tragically passed away in an accident. And then a few weeks later, Didier Peroni, who was leading the championship for the entire season, was forced to retire after injuries that he suffered in the fifth to last race of the season. And in the end, even though he missed five races, K.K. Rosberg beat him by only five points. 
On top of that, K.K. Rosberg finished his career with just five wins. He spent four years of his career with Williams, and every year he was with Williams, they had a car capable of winning races. So considering all of these factors, it is clear why K.K. Rosberg is the most shocking of all of the Williams Drivers' Championships. So now that we've gone through all of the driver champions with Williams, I want to take a quick look back on the legacy of Frank and the Williams team, and then we'll close out this episode. One of the amazing things about Frank Williams is that he's the last of a certain generation of Formula One personalities. He was a privateer. He was not a company. He was not an auto manufacturer. He built up a team from lower series, Formula 3, Formula 2, and then graduated into Formula 1. Now that Formula 3 and Formula 2 are series where the cars are all the same, they're not developed by each individual team, it's unlikely we're going to see that growth from a Formula 2 to a Formula 1 team ever again. His team and his cars are some of the all-time greats. Williams is the number four most successful organization in Formula One behind Ferrari, Mercedes, and McLaren. And no other team is even close. And if we look at the record of the drivers after they left Formula One, you'll get a sense of sort of the the mind of Frank Williams. And not only that, but just the, the capabilities and ability of the team themselves. No driver won a Formula One championship after leaving the Williams Formula One team. In a way, you could say this is like Bill Belichick. Outside of Tom Brady, every player that he released went on to have maybe a good season, but when he released them, they were done. And Frank Williams was the same way. Additionally, if you look at some of the all-time great drivers that drove for him, Alan Prost. Alan Prost spent 7% of his career in terms of races at Williams. And yet he got 14% of his wins, he got 11% of his podiums, and he got 39% of his pole positions with the Williams Formula One team. Nigel Mansell, 90% of his wins were with Williams, 72% of his podiums, and 88% of his pole positions. He only spent half of his career with Williams, seven of the 15 years that he was in Formula One. A guy like Nelson Piquet, a two-time champion, 14% of his races were with Williams, 30% of his wins, 35% of his podiums, and 25% of his pole positions. This goes into the whole ethos of Frank Williams, that the team is above the driver. And no other team has been able to succeed with that mantra the way that Williams has. Ferrari's dominance, built heavily on Michael Schumacher. Mercedes' dominance, built heavily on Lewis Hamilton. Renault, the two years that they won, built on Fernando Alonso. Red Bull, the only four years they won the championship were with Sebastian Vettel. And in recent years, they've tried to do this. They've pushed people out of the team that they didn't think were quite where they need to be. But they haven't been able to find the success. Williams also changed what you needed to invest to win in Formula One. Starting in the 70s with the ground effects cars. His team did more research than anybody else. Colin Chapman, you could argue with the Lotus team, maybe had some influence there, but Williams kept pushing it further and further to the point that they banned ground effects cars 
because they were too fast around turns and potentially too dangerous. He was one of the early pioneers of these standalone engine contracts, which dominated Formula One from the 80s through into the 2000s, where a team couldn't be competitive unless they had their own engine manufacturer. If you were buying an engine that was being given to a top team, the engine wasn't going to be built around your philosophy, around your car, and you weren't going to be able to win. And the technological advances that they brought, specifically in the early 90s with the active and dynamic suspensions, electronic shift or paddle shift transmissions, which we still use today, and stability control, and the money and time invested to make those work is similar to what we have to do today to compete in Formula One as a team. Looking to the legacy of Frank, his ruthless team above individual mentality, unfortunately, would really hurt the team in the later years. He drove away talented drivers. He had Adrian Newey developing cars in the 90s and unfortunately drove him away as well. And he drove away BMW, who came in in the early 2000s and were investing a lot of time and money into Williams that allowed them to be fairly competitive in the early 2000s. To Frank's credit, he did acknowledge all of these mistakes in later years. But when you look back at it, some people will say, oh, Frank won in spite of himself. But what he was doing and how he was doing it at the time was exactly what Formula One needed and just took slightly too long to adapt to the modern Formula One where money became a bigger talking point than success and you needed to treat people in a different way to be able to keep them on your team. The most important thing to think about with Frank Williams, though, is he always kept his desire for speed and his positive outlook, even with the loss of a good friend, with Pierce Courage, even with his accident, and even with the loss of his wife. There's a great video, which you should check out on YouTube, of Lewis Hamilton driving Frank Williams around a fast lap of Silverstone in a Mercedes road car. Lewis gets in the car and he turns to Frank and he says, hey, Frank, they told me I need to drive slow. And he looks back at him and he goes, oh, they told you that? Don't listen to them. Still wanted to go fast, even though in his state, he couldn't support himself in the seat and was kind of being flung all around. Lewis even asked him at one point, hey, you know, are you okay? Did that hurt? And he said, Lewis, that was one of the greatest things that I have done in a very long time. I will remember this for a long time. And with that, we will leave this on a positive note. I hope you guys enjoyed this very different episode of Formula Interested Americans. Please log on to our Instagram. Give us some feedback on what you thought, whether or not we should do something like this again, or am I just really boring? And we need to have Nolan on the show to kind of spice this thing up a little bit. Appreciate you guys listening, and thank you very much. Reluctantly crouched at the starting line. Engines pumping and thumping in time. The green light flashes, the flags go up. Churning and burning, they yearn for the cup. They deftly maneuver and muscle for rank. Fuel burning fast on an empty tank. Reckless and wild, they pour through the turns. Their prowess is potent and secretly stern. As they speed through the finish, the flags go down. The fans get up and they get out of town. The arena is empty, except for one man still driving and striving as fast.